This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today I'm joined by the New York City Controller, Scott Stringer. Controller Stringer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. It's a real pleasure and honor to have you here. Um, so I know you're a busy man, you got a lot going on, so I figure we'll go ahead and, and jump right in. Um, first of all, I know we did this way back when, a couple of years ago already, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about what it is a controller does? Well, first, I'm, I'm really glad to see the show thriving and speaking to uh, the future of our city. So I'm really oh, glad to be you. back. Thanks for having me. Uh, look, the controller's office is really unlike any other uh, public office, uh, maybe, maybe in the United States, but uh, this office does a lot of different things at the same time. I manage a $200 billion pension fund. It's the fourth largest in America, 14th largest in the world. It's a lot of money. Uh, we protect the retirement security of 700,000 people. So uh, that in and of itself would be enough uh, to get you through the day. But in addition to that, we review 30,000 contracts with the city. We root out waste and fraud. We have to make sure that those contracts are good to go. And when they're not, we have to fight with the administration. Uh, I also am the Auditor-in-Chief, so I'm constantly looking at ways to make government better, how we can help working people in the city, and we do that through our audits and investigations. Uh, I'm the Chief Fiscal Officer, uh, some would argue the Chief Economist. When you put it all together, it's a great job. Uh, 750 people work in the Controller's Office, and every day they're trying to make New York better. That's awesome. And what are some of the initiatives that your office is working on, some of the proposals that you're putting together? Well, this office from day one has been all hands on deck. Uh, we're constantly fighting to lift up working people and struggling New Yorkers. Uh, you know, I'm a born and raised New Yorker. I went to public school here. I grew up in Washington Heights back in the day when the city was on the edge of bankruptcy. And uh, there was a lot of pioneers uh, back then who did not leave the city at tough times. They actually stayed and built up their neighborhoods, built up our communities. and now at a time when they can sort of sit back and say, look at this great city. Uh, they're being pushed out by real estate speculation, uh, by lack of comprehensive community-based planning. And I see this not just in Washington Heights, but throughout the city. So part of what I've tried to do is, is level the playing field by looking at where the New York economy is as it relates to working people. We want to make sure that the entrance fee to the city is not a $2 million condo. Because if that's the case, then we're not going to get young people from all over the world to come here. We're not going to keep the kids who were born and raised here. And that makes no sense to me. A lot of kids who have student debt, who are struggling to stay in the city, are living tripled up, quadrupled up. And there's only so much of that you can take. So my job is to talk about how we can build affordable housing how we can provide child care for new parents, and how we can restructure the economy of the city so it's not real estate-based, but rather people and community-based. 
And that's what I've been doing as controller for the last six years. So that actually reminded me of a quote that I have here. Um, and I think I actually saw this on your Twitter feed. In 2005, low-income New Yorkers paid about 56% of their income to rent. And then by 2016, just 11 years later, they were paying 74% of their income to rent. Um, those numbers obviously probably came from, from your office mm -hmm. there. What can we do to ameliorate well, that? Well, I'll give you a, another stat during that same time period. Uh, we lost 400,000 affordable housing units basically during that time period. Apartments used to rent for $1,000 or less. And did they just expire out of the laws? They or? A lot of the rent laws, a lot of these apartments got deregulated, became fair market units. There was a lot of luxury uh, built without enough real affordable housing. And look, what I've been saying uh, since I've been controller is, you know, while I think it's admirable the mayor has a comprehensive housing plan, too much of that housing uh, was built by luxury developers mm -hmm. and the part of the affordability component basically is unaffordable in most of our communities. Young people can't afford those apartments, long-time residents can't afford those apartments. So we basically created a housing plan that doesn't work for anybody. It creates luxury development, which pushes gentrification, which adds, which adds to the homeless crisis. Yep. And you put it all together, and suddenly this great diverse city uh, is only a place where the wealthiest people can live. We've got to change that, and we've got to have real plans from elected officials that don't just talk the talk, but also walks the walk with real planning. The city council has rezoned to get the maximum luxury at the expense of true affordability. So let's change that. Let's better adapt, adapt the, the mayor's housing plan in the next couple of years to meet the needs of the people who struggle in the city, the people who make less than $30,000, who are now in our homeless shelters. They work and they go home to a homeless shelter. How can that be in this city? Crazy. And my housing plan, New York City for All, would create more housing for the people in homeless shelters, for the people who need it the most. We zero in on the vacant city-owned land that we the people own. Let's stop having the Rebney developers build this affordable housing. Let's give the land back to the people, create affordable not-for-profits, and let's do this the right way and yeah. be a model for the whole country. And one of the proposals that was really, I think, positive and successful thus far was uh, the mayor's proposal for universal pre-K. One of the greatest, greatest expenses for young parents is finding childcare, and you're taking that one step further with your proposal, I think it's called NYC Under Three, and I saw that it would be the largest local investment in childcare, I think, in the United in States. In the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, look, you'll never hear me say a bad thing about Mayor de Blasio's pre-K plan. It was a game changer for so many parents and moving into 3K is exactly where we should be, especially for younger parents. Uh, as a older dad with a seven and a half year old and five year old, uh, these are not my grandchildren, everybody. These are my children. And they're uh, adorable. And they are, thank you, they're adorable. They're the love of my life. And it's not easy paying the rent and paying for childcare and my wife and I do okay. Now think about if you're a struggling parent who loves their children just like I do, but they make a lot less money, say they make under $30,000 a year, using that number again, 
Uh, how are they going to pay $21,000 a year for childcare in New York City? In addition to rent and oh, groceries it, and well, health care. And and you can't. You can't do it. And that means that the children of people of modest means are just at a tremendous disadvantage in the city. Yeah. So my child care plan would add 60 some odd thousand uh, kids to subsidized child care. For people who make less than 26,000, it would be for free. If you make less than 50,000, it's half price, all the way up to 103,000, we have an accelerator. And we would look at where the child care deserts are around the city, which is rampant. And we would fundamentally change the priorities in the city. We would now create a program for zero to three. Mm. 80% of a child's brain development actually happens from zero to three. So imagine if we could recreate it or create a real child care program for the people who are struggling economically in this city. Think about what that would do for kids and think about what that would do for parents. Yeah. You know, parents drop out of the workforce because they don't have childcare, they make that decision. If we had this childcare plan, we would add 20,000 20, parents would go back to the workforce, mostly women. Think about that. Now, just being a little controllery for a second, if 20,000 people go back to the workforce, we estimate there'll be $540 million in wages. They'll pay millions of dollars in taxes. Uh, we're gonna ask big businesses to step up because we wanna tax the wealthiest companies with the biggest payrolls. It's 0.15% to have the largest child care program in the United States of America. 0.15%. 0.15%. Sounds small. It is small. And we made it that way because for just a small investment, for $650 million, to ramp it up over six years, a realistic plan. It's not pie in the sky. It's not check in the box. We've thought about this plan for close to two years. And this would be a game changer. Look, I hope uh, Elizabeth Warren, you know, is successful and other presidential candidates with universal child care, but I'm not waiting for that. We have got to act decisively now in New York City because if we can do child care in New York City, we'll set the model for every, um, every city in the country. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And that's not uncommon for local pieces of legislation to start to be replicated around the country. And we're even seeing that uh, in a negative way 
uh, and state legislatures with some of the, the reproductive rights and the abortion bans. Um, I've seen recently that uh, New York State has expanded access to, to well, we, reproductive we, we, rights we codified, here, in, we, here well, in the city. We, yes, we codified Roe v. Wade, and uh, I'm glad we did. Um, look, there's some 30 abortion bans or proposed abortion bans in the country right now. Uh, abortion's the law of the land, but you'd never know it by the Trump administration and the far right trying to restrict a woman's right to choose reproductive health. And we're going back to a time I never would see again. And I got started in politics at a young age working for my cousin, Bella Abzak, who was a feminist icon, fighting for choice back way back when. And to see this now, yet another generation of millennials who have to stand up and fight for their rights, especially women, is just unbelievable. I proposed uh, this past week that New York City should take a further step in leading the nation, and it's time for New York in our city budget to propose funding abortions uh, directly. Uh, with public money? With public money, because, look, what's going to happen here is a lot of people in those states are going to come to New York. We want them to come here so that they... Uh, that they have uh, reproductive rights here and the ability to get an abortion, uh, but they're going to pay potentially for travel and other expenses. I want them to feel that they can come here and get an abortion uh, without having to worry about money. Uh, and also the people who live in New York City, you know, struggling financially should also have that right. And again, New York will lead in this effort. I would do, you, be, do you fear backlash? No. Because everybody knows this is an assault on women. Uh, and values and people's health care options. Um, many, you know, with the Supreme Court uh, changing the way it is, and, you know, we all have to do more at the local level. So I hope that we can get this past our uh, council, our mayor, but I have every expectation uh, the mayor and the city council have great records on reproductive health. I'm sure we're going to do this, and I'm glad to play a small part in it. So transitioning topics, I feel like we're flying right through. That's good. Just, um, it's like I remember it. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about climate change because New York City is surrounded by water, um, for the most part at least. So can you kind of talk a little bit about the historic legislation that was passed by the city council and how you envision uh, climate preparation in the future? Well, look, you know, there's good news and bad news here. Um, I think we've been too slow to spend our resiliency money and build out a true five-borough coastal uh, environmental plan. We have 520 miles of coastline, believe it or not, in this city. 520 miles. miles. That's a lot. That is a lot. And we've only spent half of the money uh, that's earmarked, so we're going too slow. I want to speed that up. As you know, uh, I've begun a process to divest from fossil fuels from our pension fund. And that process is ongoing, uh, and that could be something that could have a major impact taking on these energy companies, Exxon and the like. Do you, do you see a full divestment in the near future? Look, divest, divesting takes time. It's never been done before, a big pension fund like ours. But a lot of, but this is now, I think, going to be part of the strategies for controllers and treasurers around the country. We have to take bold action because we don't have 20 years. Our kids don't have 20 years. You know, people talk about eight years or 10 years. So that's, that's coming up real fast. So yeah. I'm doing everything I can, everything I legally can to have a responsible divestment as a fiduciary. I think every pension fund should look at this because you, know, you look at where the future is, 
It's not in coal. It's not in fossil fuel. Do you it's have a target? The, it's in the green economy. Well, right now, we the way we do it is we've issued an RFP. We're getting proposals back. This is actually happening as we speak. I'll have more to talk about it as we're farther along, but we've come a long way in the I'll last year. I'll have to schedule a follow-up. and we You will want to have that follow-up, and I, I hope we will because this could be a game-changer. But again, you know, I'm a fiduciary of a pension fund, so we do things by the book. We dot our I's, cross our T's. Yeah. But we are working. And by the way, it's not just divestment. One of the things our pension fund is doing under my direction is investment. Mm. We need to invest in the green economy through our pension fund. These are strong investments, a lot of, uh, a lot of potential here. Uh, that's going to be the future of, of green infrastructure. I want the city to start a green bonds program because there's a lot of interest in investors now around the world for the green economy. I also want to create blue bonds because we also have to think about uh, investing in water and what that means on the coastal lines of the city and around the country. So beyond um, the green bonds and the blue bonds, what is the plan to bring New York City, the infrastructure, the buildings, the people, the transportation into the clean economy? A lot of that's going to be infrastructure investment, whether it's our pension fund or our city. You know, we have a big capital budget. We should put aside money for the green economy and green projects. That's something that's not happening now, and I want to see that. Again, blue bonds and green bonds, this is what investors want. Yeah. And this is how we can build out our city and other investments, whether it's solar or any other types of resiliency work. This is how we fortify our city. Unfortunately, the, the next storm is coming, and climate change isn't going away. It's getting worse. Uh, we have a president in Washington who is challenging climate science and all you have to do is is just look on look at a television look on your iphone and look what you see yeah. you see the whole world sort of you know the ice Wildfire is melting and, and wild. droughts and, and you see it and you see it here and look i have skin in the game nothing worries me more than what happens to the children who are supposed to inherit a better earth than the one we inherited and that's not the case today I worry about my children and that new world that is something that as adults we would allow that to happen. Shame on us if we don't take decisive action. That's why divestment from fossil fuels is so important. That's why investing in the green economy is necessary. And that's why younger people from around the country and around the world are saying enough to the old politics and the old way of thinking. And I think it's critical that we all come together, young and older uh, uh, as a way of building our uh, political capital and infrastructure to change the direction of this planet. So let's talk a little bit about infrastructure. Um, the MTA is, is crumbling. The subways are crumbling. What can we do about that? Look, I've done those audits. I've done the audits pointing out the failures of the escalators, the elevators, you know, looking at the uh, the train delays and the tracks and the loss to the economy. Mm. You know, this city is defined by its transportation infrastructure, uh, both the subways and the buses, and we let that go into disrepair. So we need to create uh, a funding stream through congestion pricing and bringing back the commuter tax to come up with a financial package to finally invest for real in our subway system over the and next And those 10 are years. state level policies, is that right? Well, they're state level, but there's also a city commitment, and the city has stepped up for funding at my suggestion, and we have to do more of that. We're all in this together, and by the way, we're all in this regionally. 
we can no longer close our eyes to the fact that if you live in the suburbs, you have no stake in this. You get on that uh, LIR, but then you also come and take a New York City subway to get to work. I think we should bring back the commuter tax so that Long Island suburbanites pay a little for our sanitation and our security and our transportation system. Put that in a lockbox, add congestion pricing, commuter tax, uh, and some of the payroll moves that Albany voted on. And we're on our way back uh, to some way of repairing the system. But I would argue that the world or the economy in New York City is changing, if I can put my economist hat on. Sure. And you know, the way people are working are different. So rush hour isn't 7 to 9 a.m. anymore or 5 to 7. It's different now. People are working till 11, 12 o'clock at night, uh, going to work later, staying later. But the transportation system doesn't work for them. People are going to work earlier, and the system isn't being adjusted. We still view our bus system as... Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Staten Island coming to Manhattan when 83% of the jobs are being created in Brooklyn and Queens. So we have to really shift our entire transportation system to meet the jobs of tomorrow and the reality of how people are working today. And do you think the responsibility for shifting our system should be uh, delegated to Albany? Corey Johnson, for example, has a plan where he has proposed localizing control of the MTA. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's well, a good the, idea? Yeah, uh, you know, I have great respect for his opinion, but there's a reason why the city gave away uh, that right because of the debt service that comes with subway ownership. So I think we have to be very careful that we don't assume $10 billion in debt potentially without a way of paying for it. I think that could put us in a precarious situation. I don't think it's on the table right now. I think it's a nice, it's certainly a good discussion point. We're a tri-state uh, transportation system. We're dealing with major issues right now. So I'm trying to deal in the reality of what's happening. And the reality is uh, we have to work uh, with the tri-state, you know, the tri-state economy in, in Albany to get this done. And all it takes is experience, understanding, how to work Albany. You can't go in there and play checkers. You got to play chess. You got to create alliances. It takes a lot of work. Uh, certainly, the mayor has to spend more attention doing that. If folks wanted to learn more about the work that you're doing and follow the work that you're doing, how can they find you? How can they follow you? You can you can go online. You can give me a call, and uh, we'd be happy to spread the word. But you know, I do a lot of town hall meetings. I do roundtables in communities. So you're everywhere. Yeah. I'll give you that. <laughs> Brooklyn, the Bronx. No, we're, we're moving fast around town. <laughs> but it's great because it's such a great diversity. And there's nothing I like better than a good old town hall meeting. You know, I don't pre-select people. So come one, come all, the town crier. And I stand at that, at that podium for hours taking people's questions. You know, whether it's getting into arguments or agreeing with people, it's great. And yeah, then, you seem to enjoy going the back and forth. I love the back and forth. And, I, and then we do our roundtables, you know, during the day, no press, just hanging with community leaders, talking about the future of the city, following up on their issues. It really helps me when I get back to this office. Yeah. Uh, sort of gives me time to think about what my priorities should be on behalf of the people. And so it's a great way of connecting. So uh, people just give us a call, we'll come to you. Awesome. Controller Stringer, thank you so much for thank your you. time. Thank you, great to be here. Thank and you. And for our listeners, uh, stay tuned for our next episode.